Welcome to the Mind on My Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. Hosted by RebelGrove.com publisher Neil McCrady and Pinnacle Trust financial guru Martin Palomo, the Mind on My Money podcast tackles the financial questions we're all thinking about. From paying for college to saving for retirement, from life insurance needs to 401ks and everything in between. The goal is to help you take the stress out of financial concerns and give you some tips to enjoy life while your mind is on your money. Now here are your hosts, Neil McCrady and Martin Paloma. Welcome into another edition of Mind on My Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. My name is Neil McCrady. I'll be your host today, Martin Palomo, with me as well as always. I know it's been a few weeks since we've all been together. Uh, luckily, we've had uh, some football conflicts, which is really good news for my business. It's great news. We have uh, football conflicts. We we need football conflicts. And so we've had some, and that's been good, but uh, it's forced us apart a little bit. And so here we are back today, and we're joined by a couple of special guests. Clark Biggers is the principal and portfolio strategist for Prudential Investment Management Fixed Income, and Andy Clark is the regional director and relationship manager for Prudential Investment Management. We'll talk about uh, how to find income in today's environment. Elections, uh, it's the Republican National Conventions this week. The Democratic National Convention was last week. So a lot of uh, politics and election talk about how that could impact the economy, our own individual portfolios. And we'll talk about the uh, nasty I word, inflation. as well. So uh, we'll talk about all of those things in a minute. First, let me tell you that I'm coming to you from the Clark Ford Studios. Clark Ford is in Amory, Mississippi. 662-257-1900 is that number. Call it. Ask for Corey Clark and tell Corey what Ford product you're looking for. Even if you're not sure you're in the market for a Ford, you're just in the market for a vehicle, do yourself a favor, call and get a quote. What's going to happen is within 15 minutes, he's going to send you a quote. Uh, it's going to be right to the bottom line, no hassle, no haggle. And then the rest is up to you. You can take that quote. You can chop it around. That is certainly uh, within your prerogative. You can do that. You can use it to avoid getting kind of uh, swindled somewhere else. Or you might just do what I've done several times now, and that hop into a Clark Ford. You will love the product. You'll love the service after the sale. Corey really always says this. He wants to be your truck guy. He wants to be your car guy. People say, what does that mean? And I say the same thing. Call the number, get a quote. You'll start to find out. 662-257-1900. And Martin, before uh, we get going on the show, tell the people a little bit about Pinnacle Trust and how they can get in touch with you all. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Grateful to be back on. Uh, We just celebrated our our one-year birthday. Uh, So, I don't know, Neil, man, maybe I'll send like cupcakes up to the studio and we'll have like a virtual birthday party or something crazy like that. That sounds exciting. <laughs> it really does. That's wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy that it's been a year. Uh, it's flown by, um, you know, and for the last year, a lot of our, our listeners have heard me talk about Pinnacle and the story of Pinnacle and how we got started, um, you know, and I'll recap it just a little bit, you know, in 1997, Stacy decided that he wanted to build something different than uh, what was available in the marketplace uh, in Mississippi and, and kind of the Southeast. And so we built a company that uh, was 100% fee-based. So we are on the same side of the table as our clients. Our interests are aligned. Um, it is in our best interest to protect and grow our clients' savings and investments because that protects and grows our income. Um, We've been, uh, we've been doing it for a little more than 20 years now, and I've started highlighting some of the different segments of the business. We've talked about the corporate retirement plan side uh, a couple of weeks back. We talked about the financial planning side, and today I'm going to talk a little bit 
about our asset management side, um, which is also uh, great because we have uh, two guests. They're partners of ours um, on the asset management side, and we're going to get into a couple of topics in a bit. But uh, one of the things that we do that's a little different than a lot of our uh, our cohorts or our colleagues around here is we definitely have a more of an institutional style of investment management. That's how I cut my teeth in the business. Um, when I was in D.C. working for Cambridge Associates, I learned how to run money like endowments, foundations, big not-for-profits run money. And so when I moved back to Mississippi um, and I landed at Pinnacle, the philosophies were aligned. So uh, the way that you know some of the largest colleges in our nation and the way that some of the largest pensions and organizations manage their money is, is the exact same philosophy. Uh, it's really not the hit the home runs, hit the grand slams. It's kind of the singles and the doubles, you know, trying to get men on base and get them home. And then, of course, if uh, we've got bases loaded and no outs and we get a fastball down the middle, yeah, we're going to swing for the fences. But, um, but being consistent and just being having little successes day in, day out is really kind of our investment philosophy and our management style. Uh, and we just try to do that and stick to our guns and stick to our disciplines and not try to be someone that we're not. So um, I'm really grateful that the partnership we have with, with a couple of firms and one of them on our fixed income side, on the bond side, is, uh, is Prudential Investment Management. And I'm, I'm really glad to have uh, Andy and Clark on. Um, but before we get to them, and they tell a little bit more about them. If you want to get in touch with us and find out more about how we manage money, or if you've been doing it yourself and your stomach is in knots and you're ready to fire yourself, give us a call, 601-957-0323. You can email us also at info at PINNtrust.com. Uh, or if you prefer to not have human contact and you would like to find us on social media and have uh, a social media conversation, you can follow us on Facebook or find us on Facebook, either Pinnacle Trust or the Mind on My Money podcast. We are very responsive uh, to you and would love the opportunity to uh, to be able to sit down and, and figure figure out a plan with you guys. All right, and Neil, when, you sign up, when, you, when you sign up with Pinnacle Trust, tell them that you heard about them on this podcast, on any of the MPW Digital Network of Podcasts, you'll Dude. save 10 10 percent off your first year's fees all right since we're gonna have four voices here they've heard martin's they've heard mine uh clark if you would tell the people a little bit about yourself and so in, in large parts people can know uh, who you are and they'll know which voice is which as we go forward oh great great this is clark biggers speaking uh thank you for the uh thank you for the introduction there uh neil uh so i am a portfolio strategist with pigeon fixed income so we're the world's third largest bond manager, which may shock some, but uh, many of us may also recognize uh, Prudential as the name of a very large insurance company based in the U.S., although we do have a, a large global operation. Uh, that, that makes us a, a little bit unique, but uh, in large, I've been in this industry for 26 years. Uh, previously had some stints uh, with another large asset manager, uh, as well as uh, a large pension company. So uh, much like Martin came from the defined benefits uh, world working for the pension staff at Lockheed Martin. So uh, fixed income, economics and bonds has really been the pinnacle huh. to, to use a pun nice, of nice my pun career. So I really enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy uh, all of the details uh, of, uh, of cocktail conversations 
that put people to sleep, which is all about bonds and economics. That's me in a nutshell. And Andy Clark, uh, welcome into the show. Tell the, do the same thing if you would. Tell the people a little bit about yourself before we get started. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, uh, Neil and Martin. So uh, my role at PGM, and as Clark had mentioned, it's the asset management arm of uh, Prudential Financial. Uh, my role at PGM is a regional director and uh, relationship manager. I work on you know, a relatively small team that works with what we call fiduciaries. So, you know, Pinnacle Trust being one of our uh, one of our clients, um, and we certainly appreciate you know, the support that, that you guys have offered. But we work with some of the different investment advisors, consulting firms, trusts uh, around the country to you know, help, help position some of our products and, and you know, fit into some of the client uh, needs that some of the different firms that we work with have. And, and then to also you know, promote PGO's products uh, in an effort to um, you know, share some of the, the, the core competencies and values that, that we think we bring to the table as an asset manager. Uh, so Martin, thank you so much for having us. Again, appreciate your support. And, and I know you have a lot of clients that are you know, listening to, to your podcast. And, and those of you that are familiar with PGM and, and maybe you trust us with some of your assets, uh, we certainly appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Martin, take it away, bud. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, no, I mean, and so Neil, you know, I, I think our listeners know I'm, I've run most of our, the bond portfolio in, in, uh, in the, in, in, the, in our investment sleeve. And so it's funny as, as Clark was talking, you know, it's like, oh, he likes to have the, the boring conversations. I always said, you know, bonds were boring to talk about, you know, especially if, if in college, I remember our, our professors were, all they wanted to talk about was how to value stocks and things like that. And that's not what this show is going to be about by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, it wasn't until I actually got into the world of bonds and managing bond portfolios that like bonds actually are the sexy investment instruments. Stocks are boring. Stocks are like, if you own Apple and I own Apple, we own the same exact thing and it goes up and it goes down and that's cool and all it's, it's, it's more active, but in the bond world, Apple could have like hundreds of different issues that do different things. And there's no, uh, there's no, you know, media that's, that's reporting daily on the price of these things. So it's really kind of like this underground, like hush, hush club that only like the select few can, get access to and it's it's really the sexy part of the market and uh but but no one talks about it so we get we get absolutely no love at all in in the bond world so uh clark do you agree or disagree with that uh wholeheartedly agree <laughs> you're not there we're not the guys everyone's rushing to but it is an important part of the portfolio and one of the things i kind of i want to start off talking about is you know the fed has has, has really brought interest rates down significantly, um, you know, during the, all the coronavirus stuff. And that's, I get it totally, totally get it. Trying to help stimulate conversations, whether we agree or disagree, we can talk about later, but one of the questions that our clients have, you're wrong, by the way, that, that is not allowed. Civil discourse (laughs) about political (laughs) topics. I I mean, who the hell do you think you are that? No, 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 no. You get on one side or the other and there's nothing in the middle champ. So, so stop with that yep. PC stuff oh. and nice. We're, we're going to get nasty or nothing. Well, we're going to talk politics in a little bit too, but not about personal politics, about how politics affects all, all this stuff. But So we'll get there. We'll get there. But one of the things, you know, like, so people who rely on interest income, right, is it's hard. If you go to your bank and you try to get a CD today, you're going to get it for a quarter percent maybe for a year. Maybe you have a really awesome bank and they give you a half a percent. Um 
kind of tell us a little bit about how, where do people find income in in a, an environment like today? And, and Andy, you and Clark can play tennis with that piece as well. And then I'll I'll satis I'll satiate Neil's desire for the bloodlust of the politics at a later point. <laughs> well, I, I think, uh, Martin, you have uncovered probably, this is my opinion, is that question is the greatest challenge of our entire industry. Because when you think about it, you have the greatest, the largest cohort of our demographic profile in the U.S., in Europe, uh, hitting the greatest need for income. Uh, they're all approaching retirement or in retirement. Right. They, these are the baby boomers, right? Yep, yep absolutely. So all of these individuals need income at precisely the time when interest rates, which deliver that income, have hit the lowest on record. This is a problem. And it's really, when you think about this piece, not just a problem for, for U.S. individuals or European individuals, but but this is the same problem that really is, is a sticky one for pension companies and insurance companies at, at all across the spectrum of investors is everyone relies on some level of income as, as at least the basis. Um, and, and so when we look at this, so, so let's say you're investing in something safe, something secure, yep. something that makes you sleep well at night, like a 10-year treasury, right now you would get... 0.71%. And that's improved And that would be for the, yes, that's a little <laughs> higher than it was in the 50s. You're at 71 basis points of 0.7%. Yep. And that would be what you would return is your yield for 10 years. You would recover all of your principal and that would be it. Um, that is terrible. Absolutely horrible. Yep. That used to be what you could get maybe a few years back in a money market. Um, and, and today that's what the bond market gives you. Um, now, relative to that, things do look a little bit better. If you looked in CD rates, something safe and secure, you're getting hardly, hardly anything. Right. If you have a money market fund, you're getting practically nothing. Um, and, and so let's, you know, let's take some risk and see where else you can get that from. Just as a general measure, if you invested in corporate bonds, so you're taking some credit risk, but high quality corporate bonds, you can get around 2%. Um, that's, that's better. Not necessarily what uh, makes anyone enthusiastic. Yeah, because I mean, if you think you about if we talk about, and I know we're going to hit. I'm, I guess I'll preview the the dirty I word that that Neil mentioned earlier, inflation. And if historically inflation has been in that two, two and a half, three percent range, you just told me that in a a high quality company, and let's just pretend that's a ten year, um, you know, a, you're on the hook, you're you're in it for ten years, right? If you if a high quality company is going to pay you two percent for ten years and that dirty I word inflation comes back into the picture and let's just say that it's two percent, I mean so realistically if you earn two percent but the cost of living has gone up by two percent in real terms you have made zero dollars. That's right. So in in real terms, meaning after inflation, yep. you've gone. Just about nowhere. 
just about nowhere. Um, which is is why one should be unenthusiastic about that. And uh, <laughs> you know, to go to go on about where else can you turn to, you really have to open up your eyes and say, well, what else gives one income? And you can get that through, let's say, stocks. Yeah. I, I have heard some people say, maybe you should look at stocks uh, and, and that can generate income because many stocks pay some dividends. And there are consequences for turning to that kind of an asset. But just on the surface of it, the uh, the yield from the S&P 500 right now is 1.74%, so a little less. Yeah. Um, so where, where else can you turn? How can you make that number higher? And there are all sorts of consequences for trying to do that. And this is a system by design. This is not an accident that these numbers are low. Um, so in high yields, you can turn to higher levered companies where your money is at greater risk. Uh, and you can generate around five and a half percent in high yield corporate bonds. Um, yeah, so, and so a lot of our listeners investing in stock. and a lot of our listeners may have heard that term junk bonds, and um, you know that seems to be the media loves to to use the word junk versus <laughs> versus high yield a little more often. So uh, just tying that together, that tying that piece together. So yeah, the word junk and and high yield are are very interchangeable. That's right. That's right. And so. You know, interestingly, those the term junk is relative to investment grade corporate bonds, right? right? So right, 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 there's right. more leverage applied, a higher probability that there will be a default. It is not junk relative to stocks, for example. Correct. So uh, high yield corporate bonds do much better through recessions. If there is a default, uh, usually stockholders end up with little next to nothing, often nothing. And, uh, and a bondholder uh, has something left. Um, you know, over the past year, the recovery rates, if you own the, the corporate bonds has been about 25, 26%. So you, you do have something. It's, it's just been a lot less lately if, if you're a bondholder, but you have something. So going on down the list of, of what can generate some, some kind of income, some people turn to a different kind of an asset called a preferred stock, right? Yep. So preferred stock, it's not common stock, but it's not a bond. It's somewhere in the middle. Uh, so those preferreds, eh, they pay somewhere around four, five, and a five and a half percent or so. And, and that is a bit of a hybrid. Um, it's not as safe and secure as a bond, even a high yield bond, but it, it does have a little seniority over stocks uh, upon default. They typically don't fare that well, but you know, the point of it is you get income. And so a tremendous amount of those issuers are in financials. And let me ask a question about that too. So with, you know, it seems like the, well, not seems like, since since January, February, you know, COVID-19 has been, the coronavirus has been the headline of, of absolutely everything. And, you know, they're, they're, so when you're talking about defaults and things like that, those are, you know, not, not necessarily companies that are, that are going out of business. They just miss a payment. But let's talk about the companies that do go out of business because that's kind of started to pick up in some of the headlines as well. So, um, you know, one of the things you're talking about for safety, 
So let's just say I'm going to pick a, a fictional company and let's just say this company, you know, has, you know, it was in the energy business and cause that's one that's been hard hit. The, you know, it was, let's call them, let's say they were a driller. And uh, so they were high risk, meaning that they, you know, they would pay higher interest rates to, to our, to our clients that would, that would hold it. Um, but you could also own the stock of that company. And if they file for bankruptcy and you're a stockholder, you're essentially, you're essentially getting zero. Well, more than likely you're getting nothing back um, when the bankruptcy is filed. But if you have the high yield bond, you, there's a potential that, that you could, as a bondholder, you could get some of your money back, but you're just not, you're not likely going to get all of it. True or false there. And, and, uh, and then you can, we can move on to either if Andy wants to yeah. color some stuff in or we can, we can talk about something else. That, that's, that's exactly right. And, and to put this into context, long-term, so over the past uh, 30 years, 35 years of the history of the high yield bond market, historical recovery rates, if someone has defaulted, is about 40%. However, okay. it's been significantly less since 2015 when you saw a huge turmoil in a lot of, yeah. a lot of energy companies. Since that point, about a third of defaults, which is a very outsized representation since that's about, uh, say, 10 to 13 percent of the issuers in the market, it, it, about a third of defaults have been within energy, and their recovery rates have been abysmal, bringing that 40 percent recovery rate much, much down uh, closer into the mid-20s. So it's really energy driving that because their recovery rates have been very, very low. And that continues today. So since this coronavirus crisis, a tremendous proportion of, of uh, defaults have actually been in, in energy. So we would expect that to continue. Right. And, then, and, and also, you know, I mean, and that's diversification. This is the whole, the whole case for diversification, too, so that you have everything spread out and you don't end up with one company causing your portfolio to you know evaporate into thin air uh andy man i know uh clark and i have kind of been dominating uh yeah. <laughs> the conversation no, i don't want to okay. i don't want to leave you out man um, no yeah absolutely and, and mario you know that you know i'm working with firms like like you you guys and also some of the other similar firms and and i think one point that i was going to make is that you know the, the fed dropped rates to zero right and they yep. did it really quickly fast yep. and you know they're indicating that they're going to probably be at zero for multiple years at Correct. this point, and that's what they're saying. And even you know within kind of our thoughts, we think it could be a lot longer. So it's not like this is you know a quick problem where you just weather the storm for a short time and then you know you're going to have rates maybe higher than and you can take advantage of. And this is going to be a problem to stay, as Clark had mentioned. So yeah, um, and you know that we work with a lot of different firms, um, you know that are managing money for clients' assets or uh, managing clients' assets and. You know, there, we've gotten a lot of inquiries, uh, partly because, you know, at PGM Fixed Income, one of our specialties is, you know, the, the credit and, and, and spread sectors. You know, we, we leverage a huge investment team that we have uh, to be able to, we think, do a really good job of picking the right securities and, and, and bonds. For example, picking the right corporate bond that we think will get us, you know, paid back for a reasonable price. Uh, but we've seen a lot of interest in some of our different products um, with maybe that maybe there were clients that were invested in money markets and all of a sudden, you know, or a CD and all of a sudden the time you rolled over your CD, it went from two to zero. Yep. And now we it's like, just had it. Go? We just had it happen at the corporate level. We had yeah, a corporate CD right? that was paying us, you know, two and a quarter. 
the renewal is going to be 0.15. And I was like, no, give my money back. <laughs> yeah, I know. So you're exploring different options. And, um, you know, as Clark had mentioned, you know, he mentioned high yield and some of the other, other sectors. I mean, we're definitely seeing firms and, and clients looking at, you know, the corporate bonds, yep. um, you know, multi different other sectors, we call them our multi-sector strategies uh, to maybe get some incremental yield because, you know, government yield is zero. Um, you know, they play a good role in a portfolio because, you know, obviously diversification aspect, you know, when, when we see pandemics or we see a recession, um, as we saw rates go down, prices go up. So it helps your portfolio. But now going forward, where yep. rates are so low, if you're going to get incremental yield, you know, you really need to start looking at what, you know, what's called the spread sectors. Um, yeah, that's, that's not to say that a money market doesn't fit well in your portfolio if you're willing to accept the fact that you're going to get no money, uh, but have a stable NAV. So it's all about you talking to your clients and, and trying to figure out the, be the best mix. One, I think that's that's our biggest problem to solve as, as you know, on the asset management side of our firm, managing our clients' investments is, and it's just like Clark said at the very beginning, you know, if, if we, if you took a census of our client base, our client base is mostly either approaching at or in retirement. And once they become paycheck independent and they're no longer earning, you know, their income, they're totally dependent on their savings. And I mean, and it's not just our clients, this is everybody. It's everybody's in the same, we're, we're in the same boat. Uh, we might have different looking boats, but we're in the same boat, which is, you know, you're, you're, you're hitting a period of time, you know, either in at, in or nearing retirement. And you've, you're going, Hey, I need my savings to now generate that paycheck that I used to get that I don't get anymore. And with rates as low as they are, it's not as easy as it used to be. It's not as easy as, Hey, I'm going to take, you know, 20% of my money and put it into a CD that's going to pay me 4% and I'm going to invest in, you know, in government, really safe government bonds. That's going to pay me, you know, four and a half, five percent And, and it's, and it's an easy problem to solve. And, you know, you have your four to 5% of income you need from the portfolio that pays your bills and all that stuff that, that doesn't exist. You know, people who are managing the, the bond side of the portfolio, it's, it's a, it's a pretty stressful place to be uh looking at how do i get clients income without you know as you know alluding to what clark was talking about you know stretch too far or what you were talking about too andy stretch too far into those uh riskier assets where you know i'm not as secure i'm my the value of my portfolio is going to fluctuate mm -hmm. and all of this is by design by the fed the fed is bringing down rates and forcing all market participants to take more risk. Yep. And that is, that's in the hope that people will, in aggregate, uh, take more risk, fund more companies, make capital available for longer terms and for lower quality issuers. And eventually that will lead to better economic performance because obviously it has been hit and hit very, very hard. Okay, yeah. walk me walk me so through that. This is all what the Fed wants is to have very low rates for a very long time. You just answered my question. You said I was going to say why, <laughs> and and you, 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 but that's it. I mean, oftentimes, I mean, I mean, I, you don't become a world class journalist by accident. Oftentimes, that is the best question, which is just why. So walk me through your answer again, and then I could pretend that I'm doing this for other people, but I'm doing it for myself. Walk me through this 
a little dial it down from an educational standpoint, just a little walk me through it a little more basically so I can understand that. Cause I, I think I do. All right. So, so you know, the fed has a, a number of different jobs and, and in the end it, it's about making sure that inflation doesn't get too high or too low and to make sure everybody that wants a job can find a job in the economy. And a lot of that depends on economic growth, right? Yeah. Um, now, as the Fed um, sees that we need more growth um, or we need more inflation uh, because inflation is too low, maybe risking on, on going negative and, 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 and maybe declared deflation, um, and unemployed people are too many in number, which there are today, what they want to do is lower rates. And, and so they have a couple of ways to do that, uh, but the primary ways is Fed funds rate. And they lower that from, let's say, 2.5% to zero, which is exactly what's just happened. And in doing that, anybody that had money in, let's say, a money market account or in a CD, as we just talked about, suddenly the rate of return that they get from the yield is wiped away. And if you still want that 2%, you can't invest in, let's say, a two-year treasury note anymore. You have to invest in a 10-year investment-grade corporate bond. So you're taking more risk. You're taking rate risk. You're now taking credit risk to get that same return. And what that does is takes money out of the hands of, let's say, the, uh, a government bond, and you're giving it to a corporate issuer so that they can use that money to do something with it that inspires more economic growth yeah build a new so that's what the fed is trying building to do. or hire more people or build a new manufacturing facility or add more machines things yeah. like that right okay and, so, and, right, and so that corporate issuer takes that money and and invests that does something with it that generates more growth because you just buy a government bond and it's not going to generate any growth whatsoever so this is all part of a, a system of monetary policy it's got a lot of different moving parts but that's really essentially it is is the marketplace working for better growth and it can do that better when the fed uh lowers rates it's called accommodation and and it forces you to take more risk with your money and the hopeful result is better economic growth lower unemployment and inflation that is more optimal and neil if you were if you were to look at i guess the scorecard right now of of what clark was saying of the fed's you know dual mandate with unemployment and inflation i mean they're pretty far away Unemployment right now is double digits you know we're at 10 percent um you know it has snapped back quite a bit uh, as some folks have come back to work from the pandemic but you know we think and i think a lot of other firms think that it will slow down in terms of uh coming back so the fed's pretty far away from that and then and then inflation i know we're going to talk about a lot more but the fed puts you know the target and it's like a symmetrical target of two percent um, meaning that that's not the top where if it hits 2%, you know, they're going to start, you know, raising rates and trying to curb that. This is like an average of what they're trying to, trying to attain. And they haven't been really very close. They've been on the bottom side of it yep. for, for years and years. And, and, and deflation, and I know, you know, you know this and some of your listeners, I mean, deflation, there's a lot of reasons why the Fed's trying to avoid it. But, you know, one of the issues is that it can really curb people's spending and then economic growth. Because if you know that products are going to be out there, that maybe you're going to be a lot cheaper, you know, six months from now, why would you just go out now and buy it? So yeah, it's, that, that's yep. one of the reasons why the Fed's really trying to avoid it. 
you may have just answered this. I'm curious, and we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to get into it some, I'm sure, because we live in a, a, a really, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of a volatile time. I mean, no matter your, your, your political opinions, you know, we, we have, it appears we're on the, on the backside of a pandemic, um, but, you know, the, the economy's been crushed. I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know. People are trying to come back from jobs, but businesses have closed and, and uh, you know, lockdowns are still in place in some places where businesses can't reopen and, and, and all of those things. I mean, incomes down across the board. We've had these, these massive uh, stimulus packages that the, the bill's going to come on those here soon. And then you have a, a presidential election that, that is pretty volatile that, you know, there's a lot of, regardless of what you think, there's, there's a lot of people that are out there that are saying, hey, you know, we might not know who won this election until mid-December or later, which gets into the, you know, the holiday spending and people are going to be, there's, I, it's a really long-winded thing that I'm throwing at you, but all of this volatility, what does that mean for, for, for the markets, for bonds, for all of that stuff? Uh, so, you know, one thing that, that we don't do is talk about uh, politics on a personal level, but we can't avoid talking about politics as it relates to how it impacts the economy and therefore sure. the bond market, right? Sure, right. It all just works together. Now, the old school thought was politics is a sideshow, and it doesn't really, really matter as much, uh, but things have, have drastically changed. Um, now, um, because of coronavirus, I, I would say the overall driving uh, effect on the economy will be a vaccine in the path of the virus and infection. That is what the market will be very focused on, less so on politics. But I will give you a rundown of what our firm's assessment of the, the politics of the situation can be even though it is significantly less than any impact on a potential virus, uh, vaccine, and better treatments as well as, as infection rates across the, the country in different regions. Uh, but I'll, I'll, we, we definitely have had quite a few uh, political consultants in to talk to our investment committee, and so I'll, I'll really give you some of their assessments. It's, it's not us. That's not our profession. But there are sure. many people who make it their profession, right? And so we, we would see this election as having four possibilities uh, of outcomes, each with a different probability, some high, some low. Uh, so the, you know, uh, one outcome is Trump wins and keeps us in it, right, which is kind of status quo. Um, that seems to be a, a fairly low probability, probably the lowest of the four outcomes. Uh, moving up in probabilities is Trump wins and the Democrats take the Senate. So you have uh, Congress blue, Trump in the White House. Uh, so that is you know, pretty much total gridlock at, at that point. Um, that also would be a little higher probability, but still pretty low. Um, the, based on, on uh, all of the polling, and in particular in, in key states, it would look like right now a uh, much higher probability is that Biden would win the White House um, with two different outcomes there. One is uh, the Senate remains in Republican control. The other is uh, that Democrats actually take the Senate. So that would be the outcome called blue sweep, right? Yeah. And, um, and, and the one where the Senate remains Republican, 
there would still be mostly a gridlock action where there couldn't really be dramatic changes, but the blue sweep, there would be dramatic change. And, and that actually does have the highest probability among those four outcomes is the blue sweep. Given how dramatic polling is in favor of those and in um, the likelihood of changing from the, these wide gaps from here on in, uh, that, that actually does look like the, the more probable scenario, even though all of those have, have a non-zero probability. So, uh, you know, the assessment for the economy, in, in essence, is moderately neutral. Because, again, the driver here is going to be a vaccine. Yep. But I'll run through, if you'd like, more of industry by industry, the impact of the blue sweep. There would not be massive impacts in the other scenarios, but in the blue sweep, could there be change? Yes, and, and it varies by industry, some positive and some negative. Yeah, I mean, I would be interested in that. If that happens, obviously, there's a two-year window at a minimum where the, the Democrats would have complete control and uh, mm -hmm. they, they, could, they could make dramatic change. And based yeah. on the, and the, based, and the biggest based, one is... Based on the rhetoric from their convention, I mean... That seems to be the plan. Yeah, and and you know, I would say the biggest economic impact would be the, the change that you must have full control of Congress, which is tax policy, right? Yep. Um, now, we don't have a lot of uh, definitive statements, but it would appear that uh, the bigger one, which is individual income tax rate changes does not appear to have a very prominent role in a Biden platform at this particular point. Uh, I want to caveat that, that things could change, but there does not seem to be much appetite for that, uh, perhaps a variety of reasons. But there does seem to be uh, an adjustment that would be in store for corporate tax rates. And that is not, I would say, a half step back. So we obviously had a tax package where corporate tax rates were reduced fairly dramatically. Uh, and not all of it, but some of it is likely to be reversed going from 21% uh, to uh, roughly call it 28%. Um, and most of the impact of that, when you really consider so who actually pays that and who is most on the hook for that, it would mainly be in more U.S.-focused operations within corporate uh, uh, issuers in utilities, say telecom, and financial. So those would be probably the hardest hit in terms of actually having higher effective corporate tax rates. Mark, what do you what do you think about the timing of it, though? I mean, right. So if we get if we do get a blue sweep, say, and and you know the Democrats want to amend the tax corporate tax rate. It, you know, it just seems like right now we are, as we mentioned, we have a high unemployment rate. Yep. You know, small businesses are being affected very much by this pandemic. Um, you know, it, it seems like the timing would be kind of ill-advised to, to all of a sudden try to raise corporate tax rates early. Is that kind of the thoughts that the yeah. thoughts that we have? And as a that's, small business, that's, that's about right because um, just like for individual rates, 
you might say, is this the time? I mean, if you increase taxes, that is effectively a tightening, and, and, and this kind would be called a fiscal tightening. Is this the time to do that? Perhaps that would drive all of those decisions to later. Now, does that mean two years out? It depends on the path of the economy as you actually see it. Well, you're actually you're you're exactly right. The timing will be will be interesting to watch. What I was going to say is, as a small business owner, I can tell you, you know, who's been impacted by by the pandemic to a degree, not not severely. I've been able to survive it, thank goodness. But if uh, my corporate taxes, which are already incredibly high, they were high under Obama, they're high under Trump. If they go any higher, I mean, I'll be honest, I lay people off. I mean, I I I, mm -hmm. I reduce I reduce staff immediately. I mean, I just the way it is. I mean, I, I I'm it would to me that would feel like an and I don't want to get political here necessarily here, but it feels like that would be ill advised even in a blue sweep scenario. Yeah, and I've been curious too. So one of the things that we uh, and this I guess it was about a month and a month ago, Neil and I were just having a conversation, and I honestly didn't know the answer, so I started digging in and seeing like. The revenue that that the U.S. government takes in from taxes, I was wondering what the breakout was, and and I actually found it through uh, the tax policy, um, the tax policy website, and it was, and I was surprised that, like for corporations, I think it was right around like nine percent of the revenue taken in to from the U.S. government and tax collections is from corporations. Um, I want to say it was like. 36% or so was um, uh, payroll taxes. And then there was like 50% was individual individual income taxes. And then there was, you know, another, call it, call it approximately 5% that was things like excise taxes and things like that, like smaller contributions. But I did not realize how large just the U.S. individual, um, you know, tax revenue was for I didn't realize it was half of the pie I would have if you'd have held a gun to my head a proverbial gun to my head and said you know who pays more taxes corporations or U.S. collect or, or U.S. uh U.S. individuals collectively I would have I would have thought it was the corporations I did not realize you know how much it was the individual's uh contribution to the yeah, yeah. To tax, tax policy institute uh, that tax policy institute is a very good resource for a lot of research just like that yeah, and I'm and I am curious, you know, because one of the things, and I didn't, I'm I'm gonna just I'll be full transparency. I did not watch all of Biden's talk. Um, I got some talking points, but I was really surprised. Um, at I was expecting him to be harder on the tax line of we're gonna raise rates, and I, you know, what I heard him say, and I may be wrong, but what I heard him say was, you know, if we raise rates on individuals, it's gonna be those that are making you know four hundred thousand dollars, you know, and up. Um, I thought I heard him say that he was not interested in raising taxes on small businesses because he because he thought that that was uh, not a, not a good idea in the current environment we're in, that we're in. I I don't recall him what he said about large corporations, so I won't I won't open my mouth and chew on my shoe. Um, but that was real surprising to me. I, I I thought that it would be a little bit harder line, and um, you know if I'm just being totally honest. When he said that, I was like, all right, like he's he's paying attention to, you know, what's going on in, uh, you know, in the general public and, and how to, you know, and, and what and what he's what he's saying that needs to be done based on our current environment. The thing I'm interested in, too, and, and I'm going to segue just a little bit 
because we were talking about the Fed and we were talking about, you know, how how the Fed is supposed to be totally independent of, you know, of politics, but we see that sometimes those lines get get really blurred. If um and and I'm going to pose a question to both of you guys to Andy and to Clark and and I don't mean it's not a gotcha question if and if you say I don't know then I don't know is a is a perfectly suitable answer. Um if Biden's elected, do you think that that Powell stays in is the head chair, uh, the chair, the chairman of the Fed, and then vice versa? If Trump is reelected, do you think that that's an automatic ouster of of Powell, or do you think there's a path for Powell to stay in if Trump is reelected? You know, I would say all of those options are are overwhelmingly <laughs> open because when you really look at history, um, and, and just for the record, Powell's four-year term after being nominated by Trump will be up in uh, February of 2022. Okay. Of course, one can resign. Sure. He has so far been uh, under pressure, but reluctant to to resign. Um, and I overall assess that he's doing a very good job uh, of balancing a tremendous number of, of different needs by different constituents and, and being, you know, I'd say, um, vocal um, and and tactful. But but in terms of who chooses what, um, it, it, there have been many precedents where presidents have um, kept on any Fed chair that they think is doing a very good job. Now, I know some are re- uh, reportedly a Republican Fed chair or a Democrat Fed chair. But when it comes to a professional economist at that level, at, yep. at you're right, Martin, at, a, at an arm's length organization that absolutely, at, in terms of what they bring to the table, it is critical. They bring independence. That is very critical. If yep. they break that down, we become a third world country with a politicized monetary policy, and it would be the beginning of the end. And they're aware of that. Uh, and, and so one, you know, just, just for a couple of examples, uh, Reagan appointed um, um, a, a Fed chair that was kept on by, by Clinton, and that was Greenspan. Yep. Uh, Bernanke uh, was kept on by Obama yep. after being appointed by Bush, Bush right? Yep. And so it doesn't take uh, very long to look through history to say, sure, if they're a good Fed chair and they're willing to continue to serve and what is a very, very difficult job. Yep, I wouldn't want it. It, it, it would not surprise me at all to have uh, Powell continue. Um, so, I, I, you know, there, there are a lot of good replacements uh, that are already on the board that could be elevated if, if needed, but um, he, I don't see him going anywhere for a little while at least. Yeah, yeah I don't have too much to add to that, uh, except for the fact that, you know, we all know that Trump was pretty critical yeah, very. Um, of Powell and the Fed. You know, he was when he thought that race, they were holding rates too high. Yep. But, you know, as we talked about earlier, you know, the Fed's rates are zero now, and they came out with, you know, unprecedented monetary policy to try to to bridge the, the the economy over this you know pandemic gap. So, you know, Trump, I think I remember reading like it was back in a couple months ago saying he's like, 
Powell is the most improved player now. And, and you know, I don't know what else, I don't know what else he thinks he could, that Powell could do, um, you know, what they're doing. He's already telegraphing. It's going to be years before they raise rates. So I don't know if I would have given him most improved. I would have probably given him most valuable player because, you know, I do <laughs> yeah. remember and not, not getting into the, the, the politics of it, but I remember, especially when it was coming to the U S China trade stuff, he was just bang. I mean, just hammering Powell on, you know, to be more competitive, we should be lower. But thank God that didn't happen because if we would have gone to zero, then coronavirus happens. Like we, we would have totally, we blew all of our bullet. We yeah, shot so that all the bullets. Yeah, yeah. It would be gone. It'd be gone. Absolutely. It would be gone. So I know yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to give him too much credit because um, on the other side of that, uh, we, we recall that the Fed continued to raise rates, even though the economy, the economy's yeah. growth had stalled out at yeah. roughly two to two and a half percent. And he continued to raise rates beyond two percent. Like four times. And we see that, that uh, our economic growth uh, overwhelmingly stalled. And they, um, I think the, the empirical evidence is clear now that they had over tightened, even though that number doesn't sound very high. Given our demographic profile and our debt profile as a country, that was just simply too high, too restrictive. But now it's, uh, I guess the debate is with zero, is zero too high? <laughs> will, we, will we go negative? Well, what I else just, can you do? I don't know. I look at Japan and I know that it, we might not necessarily look like Japan. And, um, but you know, gosh, how, how many years has it, or is it decades really? Has it been two decades with, uh, you know, when, when the, when Japan went to zero and then they've just had just like the doldrums of, you know, of market, you know, Japanese stock markets have been not very sexy at all. Um, you know, I, I mean, not that that would happen to us. And, but I mean, I, it has played out a couple of different places and I don't know that we've seen a very positive result of negative rates yet. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd say the empirical evidence of both the ECB and Bank of Japan yep. are very squarely on the side that it's stimulative to bring rates down. Maybe with every percent you go lower in policy rate, the, the marginal uh, 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 policy incentive is, is a little bit worse. And so as you cross down through zero, is that necessarily a good thing? It's lower, but is it good or does it start to hurt? And I, I think there is is some evidence to point to, uh, like the the minus half a percent that you see out of the ECB, is that better than zero? Maybe not. Yeah. Uh, so I, it, it does seem like our Fed has seen that, and we we could be thankful that they have have studied as much as they can to see is there a real benefit from that, and concluded I think properly that that's not necessarily a good thing. That's true. That's true. Um, one thing I want to, I know we've, we've kind of woven inflation in and we're starting to kind of bump on time, which is great. Time just passes so fast when you're doing these things. Um, so we, we've talked about inflation as it, you know, as it's woven into the other conversations, but let's talk a little bit, you know, about it by itself. There's been very little to no inflation in the last decade. Um, for our listeners that, you know, they hear this term and, you know, of course people don't like the term cause they, 
think that that's you know money that's going to be taken out of their pocket. Po- excuse me, out of their pocket. Let's talk a little bit about inflation and why you know it is it is important to have some. It's not great to have hyperinflation like in Venezuela, but why it's important to have some. And then what's the path to get to a normal inflation environment, and what does that look like? <laughs> you know, th- this I think is maybe one of the Fed's biggest challenges right. in their future is maintaining credibility because you're right, Martin. They, they have set a goal to maintain inflation that's not too high but not too low. Right. And that goal is to have core PCE at 2% on average. Yep. So that means sometimes a little higher, sometimes a little lower. But as you mentioned, when you go back through the last oh, – what is it, 11 and a half years now? Yep. They failed to generate even 2%. That 2% they reached twice, very briefly, and then it came right back down. And that's after doing some crazy things like taking rates to zero and uh, ballooning up their balance sheet to what was previously known as large as four and a half trillion, right? And so, so that really risks credibility with anything and everything they say if they say, this is our goal, and we do intend to achieve it. We think we can achieve it, but now what do you do? When they did crazy things, couldn't generate enough inflation, um, uh, what now? And, and that's what we think is in focus this week. Uh, the Fed is, is having their annual symposium in Jackson Hole, and on Thursday, Powell is expected widely to have some kind of announcement that will give us insight for their next policy moves? What will be their policy regime, especially reflecting inflation? Will it be, and we think it it is possible that they will come out with some kind of uh, outcome-based policy that will focus on inflation. So for example, we will not raise rates until we see this particular measure of inflation at X for Y period of time, and then we will do Z. It may have some kind of a formulaic approach. And, and the reason why is, is it's all about forward guidance. It's about making sure market participants like us as big bond investors get added conviction to know the Fed is going to stay down really low, super accommodative with a big balance sheet for a longer period of time. And that engenders more risk taking, which, again, hopefully the goal is to inspire a little bit more economic growth because of that. Yep. Makes sense. And, and hopefully we get some guidance there and, uh, and there is a path and a plan out versus just uh, dangling and hanging here, hoping that something changes or something works out for us. Yeah. The, the path yeah, is definitely, uh, you know, the, the timeline maybe is two years, three years away. Sure. Uh, our view is eventually we'll get past this. We'll be back in the next cycle, but I think the peak, in that cycle will be a little bit different in terms of rates. Maybe you're looking at the Fed having a ceiling in the next cycle of two, possibly one, significantly different than where it's been the last 45 years. I have one lower. And I have one more quick, you said, and I'm ADD and I promise this will be my last question. Um, Like I'm totally the, the, the little dog from up Doug. That's like real loyal (laughs) and then like squirrel (laughs) off. That's me. So I want to ask, and I'll ask this to both Andy and Clark and you guys, it's just going to be a, either a true or false question. So I read 
and one of uh, one of one of our other partners were were doing some writing, and they're very tactical. And they were saying we have just exited the shortest recession that ever existed in our history, and we are now in early cycle, um, you know, expansion. True or false? What do you think? I'll let Clark answer that one first. I would, <laughs> I would agree that we have exited the recession if you define the recession as back-to-back quarters of negative growth. Correct. It was a very severe shock. Yes, I mean, and absolutely. with 10.3% uh, U3 unemployment rate with like 16% uh, of U6 uh, unemployment rate, that's a lot of people. Lot of people. I, I doubt they would say the recession is over. And it may take three years to get everybody back to work. Yeah. At, totally at the agree. same level of full employment that we saw back in January. So calling it recession ended, calling it short, I think there's more to be said than just a, a, a true or false about that. Yeah, I agree with Clark. I mean, the, the, the recession was so steep that you're now at a pretty low baseline to, to have growth on top of, you know, what we may have this year. Right. Um, you know, there will be volatility. And a lot of this hinges, obviously, on, you know, do we get a, a vaccine and get back to normal? And, and yep. you know, it will be slow. I mean, there's just industries that are going to take more time to get back and it will, it will the unemployment rate will take some time as well. So, um, so I, I, I second Clark's opinion there. So let me interrupt because, and real quick, we're, we're wrapping up. Both of you have mentioned vaccine. Historically, and I know, I know the president has said there's multiple vaccines that are coming. There were reports yesterday about China's already rolled out some test vaccine, whatever. But historically, vaccines don't happen quickly. And a, a vaccine in the next six months would still be incredibly quickly historically. What if there is no 100? What if there's no true vaccine in the next say two years and this virus does what most viruses of this magnitude do which is they it goes down and it's lethality and it goes down and it's um, ability to spread but it still hangs around uh there you know yeah what then well neil russia does have a vaccine so don't forget about that <laughs> <laughs> all right who among us is going to be the first in line for that one Anyone? Show of I volunteer Andy as tribute. Andy is going I've as got tribute. To, I've got to do my hair, and it's going to take a while. And I, 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 you know, listen, I, I want to go do it, but I, I, I want to look perfect for that vaccine, and I'm just not comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I volunteer so. Andy as tribute. <laughs> Oh, uh, so uh, <laughs> at, at, at Pigeon Fixed Income, we've had a number of virologists in to help us understand these types of topics because, you know, we're economists, we're bond investors, we, we don't do vaccines, right? And, and there are a lot of very specific nuances to this that are a little mind-blowing, but they all were universal in their confidence behind having a vaccine that will have not a hundred percent effectiveness, but a large effectiveness on the population, and uh, and and that that will be reached uh, by the end of the first quarter of next year. Oh wow! Since okay. then, there have been a number of announcements to say maybe it could be sometime within the fourth fourth quarter of this year on November fourth. But that it, <laughs> that it is eventually. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, Clark. I, that was my smart ass coming out. Wednesday, in me, November fourth, around nine a.m. 
I'm sorry, dude. Uh, You're being serious. So it's, just totally totally it. it's, it's, um, it's not from their perspective an, an if, it's a win, and, yeah. and it's reasonable that it could be uh, moderately soon, and not just one, but a bunch of different uh, vaccines, right? Yeah. Nobody's going to corner the market on this. Um, but I, I think that could drive, of, of course, a different behavior by consumers. And that's all it's all about, right? Yeah, yeah. People will feel free to go out and do the same things that they were doing back in January, February, and that is the end game. Yeah. Uh, and it is, nobody can say 100% certain, but they, they were very certain, just as certain about that that they were that we will see second waves and third waves, but that it would be a little bit more regional. And that will continue to drive people's more cautious consumption until you you really can push out a vaccine and everybody has at least had a chance to say, when are you going to make your appointment for that vaccine? And and that will eventually lead to us getting back to normal at some point. Uh, but um, but I guess the, the to the answer to the question, what if there isn't anything or nothing is effective on that kind of a wild card, what we would call a lower probability? Uh, event that would be truly horrendous for our economy. If this is just the way that we are living in infinity. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I'm almost a, apologize for asking it. Just when I think about it, because it, it, we've we've got to we've we've got to get ourselves back to some degree of normal here soon. And that's what it's all about. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, it was it was a, a fun visit, and thanks so much for spending more than an hour here with us. Yeah, appreciate you guys. Yeah, guys, thanks Our a pleasure. lot. I really appreciate it. And uh, if you don't mind, I just want to also quickly mention to some of your viewers that uh, we also have our own podcast. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, PG, PG, yeah, PGM Fixed Income has uh, a podcast that you can access in, in a lot of the same ways you're accessing this podcast. And the podcast is called All the Credit. Nice play on words, uh, man. Search it and yeah, right. I didn't come up with it, but it is good. <laughs> cool. So all the credit if you want to listen to you know some of PG and fixed income thoughts about everything fixed income. And Martin, again, thanks so much for you know your partnership and, and having Clark and I on your podcast. Yeah, really we appreciate we appreciate you guys. All right, that does it for this episode of Mind on My Money podcast. Don't forget it's pintrust.com, P-I-N-N trust.com. Mention that you heard about Pinnacle Trust. On this podcast or any of the MPW Digital family of podcasts, you'll get 10% off your first year's fees. Until next time, take care.